morning. If you guys want to find a seat, we'll get started. Good morning. How are you? Um, Tim is away this morning, and so I, I'm here with you. I'm Mandy, if, if I have not met you yet. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Thank you for the shout-out. <laughs> So uh, we have been talking the last few weeks about Christian practices or habits. And these are habits or knowledge that we can acquire only from doing them, doing it like a practice. Like yoga, like if I can't, if I would do the, what is the tripod pigeon, lotus, I, <laughs> eagle, there's a thing. Um, I'd have to practice. I couldn't just get into those poses immediately or even after a long time. And like, <laughs> and like yoga, we're not born knowing how to, how to do it. Christian virtues are learned. Uh, the Greek word that Tim introduced a couple weeks ago called erite, I think is how you say it, implies action or function that helps a thing or these virtues operate as they were intended to, uh, to help it express its true nature. And these habits or virtues are supposed to allow us to operate or live as we uh, were created to. Is there any way I can get more light? Like, I can just barely see. Anybody know anything about that? Anyone in the back? <laughs> Maybe, um, I think Colton will hear me say that. If there's any way I can get light, like, right here. <laughs> Is that funny? I literally, I'm like straining. I'm sorry. Okay, well, I might just have to strain. Uh, I'm sure they're working on it. <laughs> so let's see. So virtues are to make us as a community distinguishable um, from the world, not a bunch of, oh, are you just going to stand there for me? <laughs> no, that's okay. I would need you to stand here the whole time. I was, didn't know if she was serious. Maybe that could help. Um, we've completely lost control. Do you need me, Colton? Okay. Okay. Christians were intended to be bodies, and we are intended to be a body that was built for compassion, for patience, for forgiveness, for gratitude, for love and peacefulness. And these virtues or habits are how we view the world and how we interact in and conceive of the world. And they're embodied in our actions. So more than just an attitude, more than like a, a state of mind. Christians as a people are not meant to be co-opted by any other political or cultural power or agenda. They're intended to embody God's intention for humanity. So the implication is that we have to work at or practice these things, put them on, um, and thank goodness we, we do it together because really the alternative in our culture is quite dehumanizing, isn't it? So to be a new community that is marked by the, the presence of God, we employ this set of alternative and sometimes subversive practices that match God's intention for humanity. So this week, uh, as we talk about being peacemakers and befriending it, the outcast, we are subverting a culture of war, violence, and revenge. And I, I have to say at this moment um, that doing a talk on peacemaking in the week that has had the headlines that we have had is, is tricky. And it's also either total foolishness or maybe you know, the most pertinent and important thing we could talk about at this moment. But I'm glad for the tension. I, um, I'm kind of glad that we can feel that today and feel the tension about what Jesus has called us to. 
So this morning, I'd just like to spend a little time talking about the call to be a peaceable people, really to be a peacemaking people and to renounce a life of violence. What do we view as peacemaking, what peacemaking is not, and uh, what Jesus says about the topic? And, uh, oh, thank you. Look, uh, as we, sorry, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good luck. <laughs> That's great. That's so great. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> as we talk about these things, it's just important to know I, am, I don't have this figured out. I'm not great at this. I'm just a beggar trying to tell the other beggars where the bread is, you know. Um, to start, let me just ask you, of the people here today that grew up in church, maybe you went to Sunday school or youth group if you had those, in your background, what were some of the messages you got from the church? Like things you took away with as you look back on your life as a, long, as a young Christian. Um, is there something that for sure st stood out to you as a message the church was giving you? Anyone? You can just hold it in your head, actually, let's do that. Um, the reason I ask is because I remember back to the messages or the lessons that really stood out for me that I came away with uh, from a, a life of kind of growing up in the church. And like things like love the Lord your God with all your heart. So, and that's a good thing. Give your heart to Jesus, you know, however many times that might take. Um, the church taught me how to resist the temptation for lust and for sure. Don't be sleeping around. Don't have sex before you're married. That was a biggie in my church. But I do remember one mess. I don't remember one single message on resisting the temptation for violence or being a peacemaker or how to even just resist any of that. So, I mean, why do we worry, at least this is the message I got, why would we worry about peace if heaven was the goal? Historically, the church has been really passionate about, I think it's fair to say, certain things, certain ideas, um, about going out, spreading the good news of the gospel, baptizing new believers, but not maybe as concerned about teaching those people how to obey Christ's commandments or live as Christ actually taught us. So we end up with a lot of people who believe in Jesus, for sure, but don't live by his teachings. Um, the result is that we end up with what Dallas Willard calls uh, vampire Christians, who want Jesus for his blood, but nothing else. They want to be forgiven, forgiven certainly, but not too concerned with his actual commandments. So what do we think about when we think about, in our culture, about peacemaking and the message we get in our culture? Maybe you think about being meek and mild and maybe a little passive. This is a very self-actualized crowd. I'm sure that's what you think. Um, maybe you conjure up images of Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Those, I mean, I hope you do. But there's also another really loud voice we don't have to search very hard for, isn't there, in our, in our culture that says being a, what, a, what it means to be a peacemaker is like the antithesis of Gandhi. When you search peacemaker on the internet, a lot of the results uh, are stuff like this. So there's, a, there's apparently a show called The Peacemaker. I have actually never watched this show, but it's a spinoff, I believe, of the DC uh, movie, The Suicide Squad. It looks super peaceful, doesn't it? It even says, loving peace so much, he'd kill for it. Has anybody ever seen that show? Oh, really? It is a real thing, I, okay. <laughs> oh, right, yes, that's who it was. Another thing that comes up when you search, do some searches about peacemaking is, is something like this. This is actually a 
uh, Colt 45, it's nicknamed, nicknamed the Peacemaker. It was the weapon of choice, I guess, in the Wild West, and it was the official revolver of the military for many years. And I think the one pictured there is like a collector's item or something, but they are still in production today. You can still get a Peacemaker. Uh, the internet says about this gun, the single action army model was famously known as the gun that won the West. And you know what a better firearm, they say, could be selected to honor those brave men and w women on the frontier who fought on the side of law and order at a time when there were many who would disturb the peace. So that's the peacemaker. And of course, these images are, you know, I've cherry-picked from our culture that have uh, really quite obviously are the opposite of what would invite peace. But we would, what we're talking about today is the virtue of peacemaking and how we put on or practice uh, that runs totally counter to those messages and that set us apart to make us kind of distinct in this world. Not like a kind of distinct to be cool. None of my experiences with uh, Christian virtues and certainly not peacemaking have ever made me cool or you know, social media worthy for sure. So let's look at what Jesus says about being a peacemaker. There's actually quite a lot. The Gospel of Luke begins with the proclamation that Jesus will guide our feet into the way of peace. At Jesus' birth, an angelic choir sang peace on earth. On numerous occasions during Jesus' ministry, he offered men and women words of peace. Go in peace and sin no more. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. Many churches following the, G the example of Jesus share the peace on a Sunday morning um, with each other. They say, like, a, if you've ever been to a church that does this, the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you is the response. Our version of that is what we just did is as we dismiss the kids, we turn around and say hi to each other. We assume, at least the vast majority of us anyway, that ours is a religion of peace, peacemaking and peace loving. And I think if we were to look at kind of the three big like narratives or temptations in life that we talk about around here sometimes, the narratives of money, sex, and power that are as you know, old as humanity. Um, even Nietzsche would say that life is all about power. Power is kind of the ultimate, how to get it and how to keep it, if, if those are the chief temptations of the world that we live in, and our calling is to use those things in generative ways, then I think for the last, I think it's fair to say for the last about 1,700 years in the area of power, the church has been really compromised. But regardless, it doesn't matter, uh, Jesus sends us as peacemakers into a world that is ugly with violence and hate. We aren't given the choice whether or not we would uh, like to be peacemakers, and we're certainly not given the choice about what kind of world we're sent into. And as bad as things may be, this is the only world we have. And if we're going to be true to our calling at the, as the church, we have to be peacemakers. So what did Jesus mean by peacemaker? At the beginning of Luke, just at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Jesus will guide our way to peace, it says. But by the time we get down to Luke 12, and at certain times in the lectionary, these uh, verses are often together in the, on the same day. It says, do you think that I have come to bring peace to this earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. That doesn't sound terribly peacemaking, does it? Um, 
In his really great commentary on Luke, N.T. Wright, he writes these commentaries that are very accessible. It's called like Luke, Luke for Everybody or something like that. Um, he tells a story about how the composer Beethoven used to sometimes play a trick on his very polite and formal audience, especially when he kind of sensed that they weren't really listening to the music or they weren't interested. Um, he would perform a, a, one of his piano pieces, and it was a slow movement, which would be really gentle and beautiful, and he lured the audience into this kind of cozy place, you know, quiet and peaceful. And then just as the final notes were, like, fading away, Beethoven would bring his whole forearm down on the, the keyboard with a crash and, and laugh at the shock uh, that he gave the audience. Wright says that this, this section in Luke is probably... Uh, just like that in Beethoven. Uh, the shock of the crash of the notes interrupting the peaceful melody is a good image for what Jesus had to say here toward the end of Luke, that a crisis was coming and it was going to pose a challenge to all of their loyalties. It was turning everything on its head and for those at least who were hearing that. It doesn't really sound like the Prince of Peace. In fact, Jesus seems to be saying no I'm the prince of division, but Luke is saying that once this message seeps into the homes and into their communities, there will be no peace. Families will split up over this. And all of, and all of this, families being split up, mothers against daughters, was an allusion to Micah 7, actually, where the prophet warned of the imminent sort of crisis that was coming. And the prophet urges that the only way forward is complete trust in God. So Luke tells us in really honest, uncomfortable, and unflinching terms what will happen if we dare to take our faith journey really, really seriously. And that faith journey includes peacemaking. It is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. This passage compels us, though, to wrestle with the really hard, high cost of discipleship. But rather division, it says in Luke. Again, it's important to remember when Jesus speaks of division, rather than peace, he's being descriptive. He is not being prescriptive. It is not Jesus' desire or purpose to set fathers against sons or mothers against daughters. It's certainly not his will that we stir up conflict for conflict's sake or use his words to justify violence or war. But his words are necessary. They're a necessary reminder that the peace that Jesus offers us is not the fake peace of denial, of dishonesty, or a harmful accommodation. The peace Jesus is talking about is holistic. It's truth-telling. It's disinfecting kind of peace. The kind of deep, life-changing peace that doesn't hesitate to break in order to mend and to cut in order to heal. Jesus will name realities we do not want named. He will upset hierarchies that we would rather keep intact. He will expose lies that I tell myself out of laziness or cowardice, and he will disrupt dynamics in our relationships with ourselves and with each other that keep us from wholeness because the shalom of God is about so much more. This is not because Jesus wants us to suffer. It's because God knows that real peace is worth the struggle. We're not working for peace so we can feel safe and comfortable. Consider the fact that Jesus forced choices from just about everyone he met during his years in ministry. No one met Jesus without feeling compelled to change. Jesus consistently brought people to the point of crisis or tension, movement or transformation. 
He consistently led people to decisions that their families and their communities just didn't understand. Jesus himself was considered kind of crazy by his own mom and his brothers and sisters. Still, the status quo just held no sway for him. His project was shalom, or nothing. Flannery O'Connor has this great quote. It says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you weird. I love that. We, we could probably add, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you a pariah, or gossiped about, or a troublemaker at Thanksgiving, you know? And so I have to ask myself, when was the last time I let my faith, like, divide me? When was the last time I allowed Jesus to bring me to a point of a saving crisis? When was the last time my faith life encouraged a holy shakeup or division or change? In other words, what am I most invested in? My comfort or being a peacemaker? And this, I know this all sounds a little ooh, like antagonistic and maybe even a little hostile for a talk on peacemaking, um, but welcome to life with Mandy. <laughs> I would rather kick in the door than, you know, so like I said, this hasn't come natural naturally for me, but um, I think that peacemaking and a call to denounce violence has, uh, is what we're called to, even if it doesn't come naturally to, to us. Those are the things I had to be converted to. And so uh, um, I'll tell you about what converted me and made that conversion happen. One is the witness of Jesus, kind of obvious, I suppose. And the second one is the logic or motivation of Jesus. And three would be the shape of the whole New Testament. So we'll just pick one of those, but we'll look at the second one, what I'm calling logic uh, or rationale. So if we look at the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, here's the logic sort of explained. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other also. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. So remember, we're looking for like the logic, but not just the what, but the why. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So what's the rationale behind renouncing violence in our lives? Is it because nonviolence works? I mean, we certainly have learned a lot from Martin Luther King, from Gandhi, have we not? We've learned a lot in history about the power of nonviolent resistance. Um, this guy, Mark Kurlansky, I think is the way you say his name. He's, as far as I know, not a professing Christian, but he wrote this book called Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. It's a really fascinating book. He gives an alternative story that is compelling about the power of nonviolence and how nonviolence can and should be the preferred technique for those wishing to speak truth to power, for overcoming social injustice and for ending wars. That's the way to go. He says uh, that standing armies and huge arsenals of weapons are not really a deterrent for violence. Don't we know it? This is his assertion, but it would be interesting, I think, to talk about that, to, to, to you know, be curious about that if nonviolence is more effective than violence. 
But that's actually not what Jesus is getting at here either. Um, perhaps our motivation should be just simply to be obedient because Jesus said so. Um, like Simon says, Jesus said it, you do it. And truthfully, I mean, I would be open to that. <laughs> I would be fine to th for that. Jesus uh, being obedient would be enough for me. I trust Jesus about my own good more than even I trust myself. But Jesus does actually give a reason, not just because he tells us to, but he tells us to love our enemies, give to those without exception, because you will be children of the Most High. Why should we practice peacemaking? Why should we uh, turn away from violence and love those who persecute us? Why should we be merciful, just as your Father is merciful? In the end, we're to, to love our enemies and do good to those who wrong us, not because it's effective, and not only because Jesus said to. We are to do it because that's what God is like. The psalmist tells us, our God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, rich in mercy, abounding in love. His compassion is over all that he has made. And if that is what God is like, then we as his children are to be the same way. If we want to understand what God is like, we look to the Son, we look to Jesus. Colossians tells us that he's the image of the invisible God. And what does the Son do? Well, Romans tells us, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for the righteous person, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on to say a little bit later in that passage that we were once alienated from God, God's enemies, we had no regard for God's commandments, living as if there were no God. And how does God treat us? Does he destroy us, kill us? No, he pursues us in love and grace and woos us and wins over our hearts. Here's a people in Romans who had gone about life as if there was no God, rejected God in every way, at odds with God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the logic. And of course, it defies logic, really. But that's the logic behind te Jesus' teaching about peacemaking and nonviolence. God loves his enemies, and we are too also. Nothing displays more of God's character than loving our enemies. Peacemaking is at the heart of the gospel because it's at the heart of God. Nothing else communicates the gospel so incredibly clearly or points to the heart of God as directly or looks to the reality of the kingdom of God so clearly as peacemaking, loving our enemies. Eugene Peterson once said, I'm a pacifist, but pacifism doesn't offer a way to change the world. Instead, it offers us a witness. There's this incredible book. Uh, it's actually a chapter in a book by Richard Hayes. It's called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. It has a he has a chapter in this book uh, that is really the single best, I think, comprehensive kind of treatment of nonviolence that I've ever read, at least. He says, only when the church renounces the way of violence will the people see what the gospel means, because then they will see the way of Jesus reenacted in the church. So I guess the question is, what is lost when the church is compromised in this area? A lot powerful witness to God's character in the coming kingdom is lost. When Christians just sort of merge together with the culture of violence, the culture of powering up, of revenge and retaliation, we lose that witness. Instead, I'm, um, I'm afraid that we have to be willing to let the gospel, like a hammer that breaks a rock into the pieces, 
as it says in Jeremiah, shatter some things in our lives? Are we willing, for example, to allow the gospel to shatter the monolith of white privilege in America? Are we open to God's hammering when it comes to our just mindless consumerism and our need to acquire? Can we allow God to break the indifference to death and addiction to guns that have turned places that should be totally safe into unsafe places? Are we open to God breaking our hearts with compassion so that we can welcome into our midst the stranger, the refugee, the immigrant? Because you know what else is a Christian virtue that takes a lot of practice is pairing with the outcast. It's totally countercultural, isn't it? Our culture tells us that we should keep them out. Whoever the them is, keep them at bay. But I think that we have to be linked with the outcast to see through all of our own stuff, our proclivity for that violence, our affluence, our, our power that blinds us to the good news. And Jesus moves against that at every turn of his ministry, doesn't he? He lived in solidarity with the, the poor, the lowly, the sick, the demon-possessed, the adulterous woman, all women, really, he stood on the side of, the leper, the sick, the unclean, all of these stories, the tax collector, the foreigner. He hung around with all the outsiders. Standing in solidarity uh, is not a feeling of goodwill or tenderness. It, you might feel that. I hope you do. But it's a practice. It's not a feeling. It's to find unity with a group that is not our own, but that we know somehow we're, our, our fates are tied together, and then expressing that unity through action. Solidarity acknowledges that we are different, but we're tied, our futures are linked. To stand together with, with ragamuffins is a huge part of being a peacemaker. It's actually the quintessential peacemaking move is the inclusion of the outcast, and to pray and work for the redemption of whatever made them outcasts in the first place. Jesus called for radical inclusion of the outsider and challenged our narrow nationalistic righteousness that is bred in an exclusive understanding of who God favors. God's blessing on his people was linked to the treatment of the foreigner and the stranger and the outsider. And those of us who pledge our fidelity to God can't deny God's presence in the other. It's when we do that that we sanction those acts of violence and acts of hate. But the witness of Christians should speak the most foundational and radically clear truths of our faith. The irrevocable image of God is imprinted in the heart of every person. The prophetic calling to inclusion that mirrors God's love and the way of uncompromised nonviolence that was demonstrated in the life of Christ. Creating peace in our lives and in our world does not just mean acquiescence. Make no mistake, I think things will have to break and shatter, and some stuff might have to die in order for the word of God to take root and to grow. Whether it's just an ugliness in my own personal life or a corporate failure in my communal or uh, national life, I think the question that matters is, do I trust God to break what needs to be broken? Do I really want to engage God's word in my life at the hardest and stoniest center? I don't know. I don't know the answers to those, truthfully, right now. But um, let me just close with a quote from Stanley Hauerwas. He does a lot of stuff on, on nonviolence and peacemaking. Um, he says, we, this is 
so Stanley Hauerwas. So we as Christ's disciples ain't got nothing to lose anymore. That's a great advantage because as a people with nothing to lose, we might as well go ahead and live the way Jesus wants us to. We don't have to be in control or be tempted to use the means of control. We can, like the first Christians, be known as people that don't BS the world. And I'm hopeful because being a people of peace is ultimately about God's victory in the world. It's not about us. Amen? Let's pray. You can stand if you like. Father, we pray to the, the Prince of Peace. Lord, give us strength to those, to those of us who are doing the long work for peace that might seem uh, just fruitless right now. Strengthen our resolve and, and don't let us feel alone in that work. We pray that we would model unity and reconciliation across lines of division. Help us to all choose the rigorous path of peace that we may offer ourselves nonviolently for the cause of peace in our homes, in our relationships, and in our world. In your name we pray, amen. We are going to receive communion together. At this moment, um, if you are new to redemption, how we do that is the ushers will come forward um, and people will dismiss you row by row. You just come down, go to any of the lines that are here. The servers will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. You can respond with amen or I will remember whatever you're comfortable with. Um, first, we're going to read the scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. When the Apostle Paul told the church, for I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, Lord, may we receive it, may, may we receive you one time, once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out. Then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good, so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come?